Good morning. We pause our study of Ephesians. We've been working through Ephesians for about a year now um, for a topical message dealing with the Reformation and assurance of salvation. And for some of you may be wondering, what is Reformation Sunday? Reformation Sunday, historically, is the, the last Sunday in October, on the, the day before All Saints' Day. Um, Martin Luther, most people view the start of the Protestant Reformation, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, thus igniting what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And, and we view that as a significant event in God's sovereignty and history, where the doctrines of justification by faith alone, the doctrines of Scripture as the authority alone, Christ's atoning work alone, to God be the glory alone, by grace alone, were reclaimed, re-clarified. We stand in that tradition. And so... Most Reformation Sundays, I like to take a doctrine that was, you know, fought over in the Reformation and bring it and, and expose it and put it out before us. And oftentimes it's helpful to do so, to, to view what a thing is by looking at it in contrast to what it is not. Jewelers will put diamonds on black velvet um, but to show the contrast. And so this morning, I'm actually going to quote a little bit from the uh, Council of Trent. If you want a copy of it, um, if you want to read it, the, the canons of Trent, I put a, about 30 copies back by the mailboxes. The, the reason is, as I make a contrast between Roman teaching on assurance and what I believe the biblical teaching on assurance of salvation is, I want to be held accountable that I don't misrepresent the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I know some of you may be uncomfortable with even the notion of contrasting. We, we need to do these things. And it needs to be possible for us to have a real substantive disagreement with others without it becoming hateful, without it becoming um, rude or condescending. And so to help us better understand the biblical teaching, and I think there's a lot of confusion on the biblical teaching of assurance of salvation, we're going to use that contrast. Um, This is an important truth. God wants his children to have assurance in their salvation, but he wants us to have it biblically, rightly. So with that said, there is no one main text this morning. Um, You can follow along with me. We're going to move to a number of passages, or you can listen. I'll read them. The references are there. You can look them up later. I'd also make one other recommendation. The central and fundamental difference between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church then and now was over the doctrine of justification. And in past years, we've done the Reformation and justification. The the act of forgiveness on God's part, where he declares sinful man righteous, innocent, and If you're interested in in that clarification, there's a two-CD message pack back um, by the secretary's desk. Um, R.C. Sproul gave two messages, I think, very helpful in clarifying this. I know probably over 40 of these have gone out in the last few years. Um, In one message, laying out a Roman Catholic understanding of justification, and the other, a biblical or Protestant understanding of justification. That is the crucial distinction, and that's the central issue of the Reformation. This is also an important issue. But we've taught on justification, so we're doing um, the Reformation and assurance of salvation. And we're going to look at this in two points. Misunderstanding assurance of salvation and then biblical assurance of salvation. Fair enough. Here's some common error, and then let's look at the biblical teaching on it. So let's begin then with misunderstanding assurance of salvation. Um, There's actually two. I'm going to use Roman Catholic Church to represent one that I think is an error but also a common Christian Western evangelical error as well. So let's look first at the Roman Catholic Church. And the point here is the RCC, which is short for Roman Catholic Church, damns, the actual word is anathematize, anathema, to condemn to hell in the Latin. The Roman Catholic Church officially, I'll even pause make another qualification, as I deal with Roman Catholicism, I'm dealing with official Vatican on the books Roman Catholicism. It's not the New York Catholic Church. It's the Roman Catholic Church. That said, I'm aware that there is drift and variety among various Roman Catholic churches. And within the churches themselves, the the people who attend understand, believe, and are aware of Roman Catholic doctrine to varying degrees. So I'm speaking about Orthodox on the books. My, My URL that I'm quoting from is from the Vatican But that doesn't necessarily mean your Roman Catholic friend believes this. That doesn't necessarily mean this is what a given Roman Catholic church in America might hold to. So ask questions. Be be informed. 
So I'm, I'm making the contrast between the official Roman Catholic teaching, then in, in uh, 15, what is it, 1563, and now, but don't assume that that is what your Catholic friend, neighbor believes, or even necessarily what the Catholic Church down the street is teaching. Okay? That's, those are my qualifications. But officially, the Roman Catholic Church damns anyone who claims to be certain of salvation. That's the official stance. After the Reformation began, about 503 years ago, it took the Roman Catholic Church a while to get together, but eventually they held a council. They recognized this had gone too far. Reformers like Martin Luther, Busser, Calvin, and others um, were making inroads. European nations were beginning to switch. The German princes had sided with um, Martin Luther, and so they needed an official response. And they got together for a council that took nearly 20 years, the Council of Trent. And that was Rome's official response to the Reformation. And in the sixth Lateran session, they announced their condemnations. Um, The rest of the council, they put forward what they believed. Here, they make their anathemas. And then the form of the canons follows a pretty clear pattern. If anyone says, and then they put the teaching they're going to condemn out, let him be anathema. Let him be condemned to hell. And if you read through the, uh, the canons of Trent, you will see that if you believe what our church believes, you, you are seriously, fully, and completely damned on a number of points. But I'll just cite one of them here to make this point. Canon 16. Canon 16 says this. If anyone says that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty, have the great gift of perseverance until the end. Unless he have learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. If anyone says, I'm confident, I'm certain, I will persevere to the end. I'm confident my faith is genuine. Unless they claim to have been told by an angel or some supernatural revelation, let them be condemned to hell. There are a number of other um, anathemas on this point, but I think that one will suffice. So that's their teaching. And the basis of it, you even heard that in the canon itself, is Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, 22, that Jesus insists true believers will and must persevere. Persevere. There's your blank. Matthew 10, 22 says this. You will be hated by all men's sake for my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so Roman teaching is pretty straightforward. Jesus is pretty clear. Only those who persevere to the end will be saved. You have yet to persevere to the end. Therefore, it is presumption on your part to say you are confident you will. Therefore, it's false teaching and heresy to say you know you're a Christian. You know you're saved. How do you know whether you'll make it to the end? And let me say, I agree with Rome on the first part. Jesus does insist we must persevere to the end. We will persevere to the end. Numerous passages insist this. But Rome's conclusions in light of it, I think, are erroneous. You see, point two here, they hold that justification is a process. This is one of the key disagreements between um, Protestant Christianity, what I think the Bible teaches in Rome, We believe, we hold the Bible teaches justification is not a process. It is instantaneous. It is not repeated. It is not progressive. There was a moment when God's law court, God's throne, viewed Jeremy Kidder as guilty. Then there was a moment when the righteousness of another was credited to me, when the blood of another had cleansed me, and God's law court says, innocent. It's a legal declaration. It doesn't grow. He's a little more innocent. He's a little more innocent. Now he's really innocent. It's it's binary. It's on or off. It's black and white. Okay? And Rome's view, justification is something you grow in. Because they don't believe it's fundamentally a legal declaration, but actually an economic reality. They don't believe God declares people who act sinfully righteous. So in their view, justification is the act where God forgives you of past sin and then makes you, in actual practice, just makes your deeds righteous by Christ through faith and your work. I'll give you give an example of that. Canon 24. If anyone says, here's their denial of 
what I believe the Bible says um, justification is. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased, so you receive a justice because God forgives your past sins. They would say this happens at baptism as a baby. But you then have to grow and increase that justice. But the, the, okay, if anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that these said works are merely the fruit or the signs of justification and not its cause, let him be anathema. Which is to say, if anyone says justification doesn't grow and get improved upon by your good works, if anyone says rather, no, your good works are the signs and the evidence of your justification, which is exactly what I would say, let him be condemned to hell. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but rather that these good works are merely the fruits and signs of justification and not the cause, let them be anathema. So they view justification as a process, not an instantaneous legal declaration. And consequently, also they believe that justification can be lost. You could at one point in your life be justified in a state of grace, and then later not be in a state of grace. Um, one canon to, to uh, make this clear. Canon uh, 29, then I'll stop citing um, Trent. If anyone says that he was fallen after baptism, is not able by the grace of God to rise again, or that he is able indeed to recover the justice which he has lost, but by faith alone, without the sacrament of penance, contrary to what the Holy Roman and Universal Church instructed by Christ and the Apostles has observed, let him be anathema. So according to Rome, you, you could be in a state of justification, a state of forgiveness, a state of righteousness, and then you could cease to be. Um, and so in this view then, you could be forgiven, right with God, righteous today, and tomorrow, because you commit a mortal sin, you could cease to be in that state. And who knows what state you will be in when you die, and that's what matters. Let me, let me use an analogy here that I think can be helpful. Um, it's, it's not an exact analogy, but if, if you're wondering how, how this is, works in their teaching. Imagine I had a paint bucket, like a five-gallon, ten-gallon painter's bucket, and I drew two lines on it. I drew one line, said, below this, hell. And I drew another line, below this, purgatory, and then above that second line, heaven. Okay? And now imagine I took four or five nails and punched holes in the bottom of the bucket. That's I think this is my illustration. So at baptism, as a baby and as an infant, your bucket's filled. Original sins washed away. This is Catholic teaching. And if you were to die then, the water level of your bucket would be above heaven. You'd go straight to heaven. But throughout your life, you sin. And the sin drains that grace out. Those are the holes at the bottom of the bucket. The water level's dropping. Maybe it drops below heaven. Now it gets to purgatory where you'd have to go and have some suffering, some punishment. So you're constantly pouring grace back into this bucket. You're constantly trying to maintain the water level. You do that through um, the sacraments. You do that through the Eucharist. You do that through giving. You do that through penance. And so a Catholic is constantly hoping, working at maintaining that water level so that when they die, they'll be in a state of grace. And to further complicate things, every time you commit a mortal sin in this system, the bucket just gets emptied just completely emptied. Lest you think this is something only from 500 years ago, from the most recent Vatican um, catechism, they say this. Ver, um, mortal sin, by attacking the vital principle within us, that is charity, necessitates a new initiative of God's mercy and a conversion of the heart. So mortal sin makes you need to have a new conversion experience. I don't want to spend most of my time this morning talking about Roman Catholic theology, but we understand. So this is what the reformers were up against. This is what kept so many of the peasants in the 16th century terrified. They never knew at what state they would die. What if you committed the mortal sin minutes before your death? You were constantly in need of infusions of grace to keep the water level up because, of course, we're constantly sinning. An assurance under this system is an impossibility. At best, you could be assured in a given moment after receiving a particular forgiveness or indulgence or grace that right now I'm in a state of grace. But I could have no confidence about tomorrow or the day after. 
And this is something that the Bible disagrees with strongly. But before we, we look at the biblical teaching, let me give you another error. Now that's, I think, wrong. I don't think there's many people in this room who would struggle with thinking that's right, but I tend to think the pendulum swing to the other side to overcompensate for that may be something that a net that catches some of us. Um, recognizing that there can be no true assurance in Roman Catholic theology, many Christians today wrongly believe that it is wrong to question their assurance. You see, if, if, if having no assurance is Catholic and bad, well then... Questioning assurance ever has got to be bad. And that's sort of where we can swing the other way. Um, I've met people who believe that only Satan would want you to question your salvation. Only a true Christian. I've been told this. this. This is near and dear to my heart because I came to faith in Christ out of recognizing I wasn't a Christian, even though I thought I was. And as I was asking questions, looking at my life and saying, I I don't think I'm a Christian, I'd have people, good-intentioned, well-meaning people tell me, Jeremy, only a true Christian would worry about whether they were a Christian. I have yet to read the Bible that says, the Bible verse that says that. I've heard that repeatedly. Only Satan wants you to question whether you're a Christian. Um, that, That also is not something I think the Bible teaches. Let me give you some blanks here. So many Christians believe it wrong to question their assurance. But here's the biblical reality is it is possible to deceive yourself about your salvation. At least two passages I can think of. James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Here's a person who thinks they have true and undefiled religion. They think they have the true faith. And they deceive their own heart and their religion is worthless. Or the passage that God used to convert me, uh, Matthew 7. Turn to Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll remember that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' broad public teaching. This isn't some niche context. This is broad. This is what Jesus preached as he went about to the masses. And the Sermon on the Mount comes to this conclusion. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 22 and 23. Many, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I do not believe on the last day these people are aware they're lying. I think Jesus pictures them as surprised and shocked. So the reality is, we can be self-deceived about our salvation. You can have false assurance. that You can have peace. Two, two men slept in boats in the middle of storms, Jesus and Jonah. Both were at peace. And so it doesn't mean we can't have assurance, but it does mean simply having assurance means we're set. There are people who have assurance who have no business having assurance, Jesus tells us. There is an assurance that lulls us to sleep. Secondly, we're flat out commanded to examine ourselves in this regard. This isn't something that we have to figure out logically. We're just told directly, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Get that? There's a command from God in his word that we examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So we, we got a needle to thread. we got ditch on both sides. On one side, you've got a teaching that says you can never really have any certainty. The best you can have is a confidence that right now, in this moment, if you were to die, you'd be okay. On the other side, you've got a teaching that says never question it. Never examine yourself. Never let any doubt sink in. Never let anything discourage your confidence that you're a believer. And the Bible says, test yourself. So how then can we receive a true, biblical, biblically founded assurance? I I certainly can't think of a worse, more terrifying scenario than being one of those people in line in Matthew 7 saying, Lord, Lord. 
How do we find a biblical assurance of our salvation? Where do we find a biblical assurance of our salvation? Well, that's now where we're going to turn to. A biblical assurance of salvation. Now, first, turn to 1 John 5. Let's make it abundantly clear. God wants Christians to know. Christians can know that they have eternal life. God's word is plain on this point. The Apostle John gives a number of reasons why he wrote his epistle. He wrote that their joy may be complete. He wrote that they might not sin. And in chapter 5, verse 13, he gives us another reason why he writes. This is wonderful. Like, make, makes this issue certain. Assurance is possible, desirable, and intended by God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence we have towards them. And if we ask anything according to his name, he will hear us. So let's settle for the issue. Certainly, we can. And John was writing so that we will have assurance. Assurance is possible. Any teaching that says it's not conflicts with this passage. John's writing so that we can know that we have eternal life. Okay? There's your first blank. Now, here's where I might challenge some of you. I believe the way the Bible presents assurance, that assurance of salvation, however, is conditional. Conditional. What do I mean by that? Well, if there's a test, then there are conditions that need to be met to receive assurance. There are indications, markers that give assurance. God does not offer us unconditional assurance. To put it another way, God does not offer you an assurance that says, live however you want, believe whatever you want, and be assured. Our assurance is tied to our faith and our faithfulness. Our faith is tied to where we are at. So that David can say in Psalm 51 verse 12, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. While David had had a man murdered, stolen his wife, hidden it, I don't think David was quite sure where he stood with the Lord. Um, or I'll give you a, a turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So I'll give you another example. Conditional statements are all over the place once you start looking for them. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, the, the classic summary of the gospel, right? I deliver to you as of first importance what you also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to see us in the twelfth. Amen. There's a summary of the truths of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Look how he introduces this. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved, if, there's a conditional sentence, you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, Rome, dealing with those conditions, concluded that assurance is impossible. Other Christians deal with those conditional sentences by simply pretending they're not there. There are no conditions. Whatever that says, it doesn't mean what it looks like it means. We need to grapple with these types of conditional sentences. They're there. They're, they're in numerous places. I'll give you one more. Um, Romans 8. In Romans chapter 8... We get this wonderful sentence. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's verse 15, 815. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Ooh, see that condition get thrown in there? Now, what the scripture is saying, and I think the logic is this, if there's a self-examination we're to give ourselves, then of course there are conditions which give us our assurance. And there are other conditions that we might resolve as we test ourselves that give us no assurance. And rightly so. The best thing in the world for those people in line in Matthew 7 would be to be stripped of their false confidence. It was the kindness and loving grace of God that stripped me of my false confidence back in the summer of 1999. Okay, so Christians can know they have eternal life, but I'm arguing that by nature of the fact there's an evaluation, that assurance is conditional. 
Your salvation is not conditional. You either are saved or are not, but your ability to discern your condition, am I saved, that has conditions, okay? And next point, and that that evaluation comes mainly from the current state of our faith and life. Comes mainly from the current state of our faith and life. Um, what, What I mean is this. As we evaluate ourselves, we evaluate where we are now, where our faith is now, who we're believing now, who we're trusting now. Um, And what we want to avoid is finding our assurance in, I know that 12 years ago, on November 12th, 5 p.m., I made a decision. And I know that I meant it, and I know it was sincere, and I wrote it down right here in the front of my Bible. Now, that can be a great encouragement of the beginning of something. That is not... Any place I see scripture pointing us to to get our confidence and assurance. As we see, where does confidence and assurance come from? It overwhelmingly comes from how are you living today? Who are you trusting today? What are you treasuring today? And so I'm primarily not trying to correct the Roman error. I don't think many here would struggle with that. I am trying to correct the other error. The error that looks back to something that happened 14, 15 years ago. And finds your assurance and confidence in that. Because we want biblical assurance. And I'm not aware of the Bible text that that encourages that type of assurance. We're going to look at texts that provide assurance. And they're coming from the here and the now. Okay? In fact, when the the present state is in conflict with the past state biblically, and there are some texts that deal with that, it brings into question everything. Turn turn to Hebrews 6. Turn to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, is one of the strongest warning passages in Scripture. I'm not going to look at that, but I'll just point that out for context. It's a warning passage with the danger of falling away, shrinking back. And the author of Hebrews is concerned with his readers as they begin to potentially abandon Christ to return to the sacrificial and temple system. And so the author of Hebrews writes this in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, this way being the strong warning, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He's concerned about them, and he wants them to have a full assurance. And it's all based on what they're doing right now, how they're living right now. So there he brings up the issue of assurance, okay? So now, biblically-based assurance rests upon three foundations. Broadly speaking, I think there are three bases of assurance that Scripture gives. And with the time we have left, we are going to move swiftly. First, there is a cognitive assurance, cognitive, intellectual. It works around these lines. The scripture says, if I believe, I'll be saved. And I have just believed. And because I believe, I believe the Bible is true when it says, if I believe, I'll be saved. And I believe I'm saved. This is the assurance we can give someone in evangelism. This is the assurance that comes from just reading the text. In fact, there's a very real sense, if you're still in Hebrews, turn to chapter uh, 10. It's a very real sense in which faith itself provides assurance. Faith itself gives assurance. Look at, look at Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith, or the assurance that comes from faith. Turn to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Here's his definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So genuine faith provides in itself a level of assurance. So Paul can say, I know who I've believed in. So there is an assurance that comes cognitively. An assurance that comes cognitively. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever is believing in him might be saved. You say, well, I'm believing, I'm saved. Amen. So there's an assurance that comes simply by having some knowledge of who and what you believe. I believe I believe Jesus. I believe I'm trusting Jesus. And the Bible says if I do, I'll be saved. And I'm saved. And that's, that's a genuine level of assurance. Secondly, oh, sorry. Before we get to secondly, i got two caveats, though. However, now I'm going to try to deal somewhat with um, 
with, with Rome's wrestling with the issues of perseverance. Saving faith, however, genuine faith, will persevere. Saving faith will persevere. The New Testament is, is emphatic on this point. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. God in his power is guarding us through faith. One of, one of the things we've got to wrestle with is the New Testament insists genuine faith doesn't die. To put it, put it simply, um, it might be helpful rather than saying once saved, always saved, once believing, always believing. The gospel is for believers, not believed. Current faith. This is why if there's an evidence that you don't have faith in your life now, looking back to a time you think you did 10 years ago is not helpful. Who are you believing now? Who are you trusting now? Now, our faith can ebb and flow. We can cry out, I believe, help my unbelief, amen. But genuine faith doesn't die. Philippians 1.6, promising that I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Or Jude um, Verses 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Um, so genuine faith perseveres. And this, this is where we tie in with Jesus saying, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. We say amen. The, the Reformation doctrine was not titled assurance of salvation. It was titled the perseverance of the saints. Christians persevere. Christians make it to the end. Genuine faith doesn't die. It has ups and downs, highs and lows. It doesn't die. In fact, biblically, we are to conclude those who fall away, those who abandon their profession of faith, were never saved. Now, we all know people who at one point in time claimed to be Christians, and now they don't. They were following Christ, or at least they appeared to be, and now they're following other gods, other values. And scripture, I think, gives us a plain understanding. These are not those who were justified and fell out of a state of grace. Rather, these are people who were never saved. Turn to Hebrews 3, and while you turn there, I'll read to you 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2, and my text here, I guess. 1 John 2.19 says this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Now, Hebrews 3. This is where grammar is important. And this is a reason why I recommend getting a Bible translation that is um, as accurate as you can reasonably read. Because grammar matters. Um, Hebrews 3, 4. No, yes, 3, sorry. This, as it turns out, actually is the first text I ever preached when I came here. 14 years ago, on July 17th, 2007, I showed up, Pastor Gary and a team left to on a missions trip. I mean, literally, I, I met him, I mean, I'd met him before, and they left, and then I was here maybe four days in Iowa with my wife, and I had to preach. And I just taught on this in California, so I taught on this passage here, um, and uh, I'll just read the passage to you. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And here's the key verse. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now I want you to look at the verb tense of the verb in verse 14. We have come to share now, is that a present, future, or past tense? Have come to share. It's past tense, right? Something happened in the past. We have come to share. In the past, we came to share in Christ. If, there's your condition, if, indeed, we hold our confidence firm to the end. So let's plug my name in there. Jeremy has come to share in Christ. Sometime in the past, Jeremy has indeed truly come to know Christ if Jeremy 
perseveres to the end. Which means if Jeremy, let's flip the verbs, if Jeremy doesn't persevere to the end, what does that draw into question? Whether or not he ever did come to know Christ in the past. If I don't make it to the end, you wouldn't conclude I did know Christ and then I stopped knowing him. Rather, I never knew him in the first place. Something is true about us in the past. We have come to know, we have come to share in Christ, past tense. This thing, this past reality is true if this future contingency is true. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Okay? I think the grammar makes that clear. So what we would conclude about those who don't persevere is that past reality is not true. Those who fall away were never saved. So there's a cognitive assurance that comes from believing. Faith itself contains within it a measure of assurance. But the faith that saves, the faith the Bible commends and calls us to ultimately cannot die, cannot cease. Second level of assurance, comfort. And here is the sort of experiential, emotional assurance that comes from from his spirit, testifying with our spirit. I read to you earlier, Romans 8, I'll I'll read it again, um, about how God has given us his spirit. One of the reasons he's given us his spirit is so that we might have assurance. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there is an assurance that comes from God's Holy Spirit testifying within us. We are his. It's it's emotional. It's experiential. And it is a real level of assurance. Others where the scripture speaks about the love of God being poured out in our hearts. We love not because we love first, but he loved us first. We experience a peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. There is an emotional, experiential element to assurance. Absolutely there is. Now, I think so far you're all with me. Um, and, and I think primarily in the Western church, these two levels of assurance are the primary ones people go to. I am believing. I, I started believing on this date, and I'm still believing today, and I have peace And I have um, feelings of peace and love for God, and therefore I know I'm a Christian. There is, however, a third basis of assurance. First was the cognitive, the second comfort. Third, however, conduct. Conduct. And Jesus said this plainly, that the tree is known by its fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. Turn, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1. As I I told you, I... uh, Long as I can remember my childhood, I thought I was a Christian, and I knew the basic facts of the gospel, and yet it wasn't until I was in my early 20s, maybe mid-20s actually, in the summer of 1999, when I first questioned my salvation. I'm so thankful I questioned my salvation, because it was, it was a lie. And then after coming to faith, I was wrestling for finding assurance, and I remember the first passage that I really could find confidence in was this passage in Second Peter. I remember actually coming across this reading on this on a, on a bus heading to Boston to go on a missions trip to Kiev about a year after coming to faith. Because I'd wrestled my assurance because I'd been deceived before. Maybe I'm deceiving myself now, was I think my thinking. So Second Peter 1. Second Peter 1, and by your blank here is growth. Growth in Christ-likeness confirms our salvation. Growth in Christ-likeness confirms our salvation. So, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So summary, God has given you and I everything we need, the tools, the promises, the strength, the power to grow and become like him. Conclusion, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So he gives a list of seven virtues. Make every effort to add to your faith these virtues. Why? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
growing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. There's another command to examine ourselves. You and I are, are commanded to be diligent to confirm our salvation. And here, the way we confirm our salvation is by growing in virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. It's not a bar you have to meet. It's not a performance level. It's a growth. It's a direction that you're moving in. You're growing in these things. That, that's, that's what the Bible's confidence. It isn't about some bar. If you're this righteous, you can be confident in your salvation. If you're not quite this righteous, you need to question. But what are you growing into? Whose image are you being conformed to? This world's or the Lord Jesus Christ? That's, that's the idea. Um, growth in Christ's likeness confirms our salvation. Another point and why this works is because your deeds ultimately reveal what you truly believe and what you truly love. There's this reason why the fruit you bear is so significant. I, I, I do counseling people. I, know all, I meet all sorts of people who think they believe one thing, who think they value one thing, they think they treasure one thing, and yet their actions make it clear, no, that's not the case. You're really loving this. You're really worshiping this. Our deeds always reveal what we love and what we believe. And Jesus is clear on this point. John, Luke 6, 45. Remember when we went through Luke? Um, and I don't have that reference written down. I've got to look that one up. Um, I know what it says, but I'll paraphrase it terribly. Luke 6, 45. This is uh, the Sermon on the Plain. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does the bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The fruit that comes out finds its root in the heart. What's in your heart, what you believe, what you treasure, what you value, what you serve, is made evident by your deeds. And whereas we can be deceived about what we think we believe, our deeds are much clearer to see. They can be observed by third parties, and it can help remove some of that self-deception. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You see the absolute connection between the heart, the inner man, the inner self, and what you say and what you do. I'll use this example numerous times. I'll use it one more time. Eve was tempted by the serpent about who she would believe. Would she believe what God said about the tree? Or would she believe what the serpent said about the tree? It came down to a matter of faith. God says, you'll die. Don't eat of it. It's bad. The serpent says, no, you'll be like God. You won't die. And we know who she believed because we know what she did. And imagine the, the folly of trying to say, no, I really think Eve did believe God. Of course she didn't, at least not in that moment. Well, how can you say that? Because she ate the fruit. That's how we know. Our deeds reveal our values. Our deeds reveal what we worship. Our deeds reveal our gods and our beliefs and our true theology. In, in a way that is unbreakable, that chain between what you believe and, and what you do, our deeds reveal what you believe and love. Point three, this test, conduct, this test is the primary basis of assurance in Scripture. Now, absolutely, the Scripture talks about a cognitive assurance, faith itself giving an assurance. The scripture talks about the Holy Spirit being given as a comforter to testify with our spirit. But the overwhelming number of texts that I can think of, turn to 1 John 2. We're going to do a quick tour of 1 John. Um, Point to the fruit. This is Jesus' number one test. The tree is known by its fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. The other passage, two, two passages were used by God to bring me to faith, were actually to bring me to lostness so that I could come to faith. I already shared one of them with you, uh, Matthew 7. Here's the other. Um, 
These are plain texts. These are not hard to understand. 1 John 2, um, verse 3 and 4 and 5. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Now that's, that's getting right at our issue. That's getting right at our question, right? That's on topic for our study this morning. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. And then John is apophatic here. He says it positively and he says it negatively. Lest there be any doubt... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. That's not a hard-to-understand passage. It's just a hard-to-accept passage. It's really clear. He says it positively. He says it negatively. He opens and closes with, here's how we know. Now, John, in this book, will give us other tests as well. Let me show you them. Couple of them. Turn over to chapter um, oh two. Brief tour of First John. You want a book about assurance? First John addresses this issue. I think about twenty times. We'll look at some of these. Um, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine of chapter two. Now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Or chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. I mean, John is again and again, here's how you can tell the sheep and the goats apart. Here's how you can tell the children of God apart from the children of this world. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So now we bring in obedience and now love of Christians. Look at chapter 3, verse um, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. We're on topic. This is about assurance and knowledge. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. Look at verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. Now, John's going to reference all three of these, but I want you to see what gets the weight. So there's the confidence of the spirit. Chapter 4, verse 2 By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Here's a doctrinal test. Christians confess that Christ came in the flesh. He didn't appear to come. Verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Christians listen to God's word. They hear his word in scripture. Those who don't prove they're not his sheep. Or again, 4.13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love, that of God, oh, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. You see, again and again, he's pointing to the present reality of the lives they're living. Are they loving Are there believers? Are they loving God's word? Are they trying to obey God? And again and again, John's saying, here's how we know. Here's how we give ourselves confidence. Here's how we find assurance. That's what I'm saying. We want the Bible to tell us where to find our assurance. We want the scripture. And it's not by this we know that we wrote that date in our Bible. If you want to do that to remember a cherished memory, amen. I'm not trying to ridicule that. Nowhere do I see scripture say you get your assurance from your memory of something that happened 12 years ago. It's always, what are you believing in now? Who are you loving now? Who are you serving now? Or chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. 
5.13, this is the verse I started at the beginning of this section. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And it's just a brief survey of First John, but how many times? He, it does absolutely. He points to the Spirit. But the overwhelming test is the fruit we're bearing. Back to Jesus' simple proverb, the tree is known by its fruit. Moreover, point four, this evidence, the fruit of the tree, consistently in Scripture outweighs and trumps the others. Consistently outweighs and trumps the others. Because sometimes there might be conflict. We see this, people who insist, no, I love Jesus. I know I believed, and I know I have the feelings and the assurance of the Spirit and yet their life is serving other gods. Their life is, is not following Christ. I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. We're talking about a direction. Go to, go to uh, James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Just a few pages over. Verse 14, and I think this passage, which um, is, is so often, I think, misunderstood when they're trying to harmonize with Paul in Romans 3. People miss the primary point. This is about your profession of faith being accepted horizontally among other believers, I think, primarily. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? So here's a picture of somebody showing up in the body. I'm a believer. Are you striving to obey Christ? Oh, no. But we're saved by grace, right? Not by works. It's Jesus' work. No, I, I, I just please myself, and I do what I want. And uh, I indulge my desires, because after all, my good works don't contribute, which is technically true. So James is envisioning somebody who says they have faith, and has no works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I think what he's basically getting is the faith the Bible's talking about produces works. Because we're always going to live out what we believe. We're always going to live out what we believe. You, You believe Jesus is king, you will evidence in your actions and deeds that belief. That will show up. But someone will say, no, no, envision someone pushing back. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Get this. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So pause. So James envisions someone saying, no, 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 I have faith. Don't have works. I have faith, though. And he says, your lack of works destroys the claim to faith. The works trump the cognitive claim to faith. That's my point. The works, the lack of works, trump it. It's the exact logic of Jesus in Matthew 7. Remember, remember, I'll read it to you again. Matthew 7. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think what Jesus is saying, the proof that you and I never had a relationship, the proof that you did not trust and believe in me is seen in your lawless lives. So this is the majority test, and it's the most authoritative test test. So, bring us to our final point then. Now, at this point, you may think, oh, great. You may be saying it differently, Pastor Jeremy, but aren't you really ending up where Rome ends up? You can't have assurance because you, you, you have to keep believing, you say, and you have to keep growing, and 
Maybe I won't be growing next week. Maybe next year I'll stop growing. Maybe two years from now I'll stop believing and become a Scientologist or something. It's possible. So what assurance can I have? Well, probably not a Scientologist, but um, what assurance can I have? And so I want you to get this point clear here. Uh, and this is partly why the Reformers, you may wonder, why do the Reformers focus on the sovereignty of God so much? They understood that if salvation was to be a work of grace alone, not dependent on our good works, and if the scripture insists that genuine faith perseveres, then the only way you can have assurance and a salvation that can't be lost is by faith being both God's gift and something that God shepherds and maintains and perseveres. This is why we sing, he will hold me fast, not I will hold me fast. Your final blank here. He keeps us believing and obeying. Our our confidence, our assurance, is that the shepherd who sought me, came after me, who called me, who gave me faith, who opened my eyes, who, whose evidence and work I see in my life over the last 20 years, that same one will hold me fast. Philippians 2, 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you always obey, so now, not only my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. Or Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. First Peter, by God's power are being guarded through faith. The faith that's guarding me, because I got to keep believing, right? Is God's activity, God's power. He's holding us fast. So when I look for assurance in my life, I look to my current beliefs. What am I believing? Making sure I'm not a heretic on some point. Then I I do look to my emotional life. Do do I experience the testimony of God's spirit within me crying out? Do I I feel intimacy with God? But ultimately, I look to the fruit on the tree. Am I growing? This is one of the reasons why we need each other, because you can be tempted to either be too harsh with yourself or too easy, but others can speak to you growing. Others can speak to the fruit you're bearing. We can give ourselves assurance in that way. The danger for us is... Imagine, I'll give you a silly example. You plant a tree in your yard. Imagine the the folly of trying to insist it's a fig tree when it keeps growing growing thorns and thistles. And you tell your friend, look at my fig tree over there. And they say, those aren't figs, those are thorns. And and your response is, no, I got the receipt right here. See the date on that receipt? November 12th, 15 years ago. And what does that receipt say? It says fig tree. Those are figs. No, once the tree bears its fruit, it trumps any other claim. No, I know I bought a fig tree. I remember it. I was really pointed about it. I made a very decisive decision to buy a fig tree, and I got the receipt right. No, of course the fruit trumps everything else. And so we want to find a biblical assurance. We want to avoid the two errors. One, no assurance. But the other, a sort of blind assurance that can lead you in that appeals line on judgment day. Lord, Lord. You want a biblically based assurance coming from the assurance that faith itself gives from our faith, from our decision to trust Christ. The assurance that comes from the Holy Spirit within us. And the assurance that comes from seeing the new birth. I mean, basically what you're saying is in conversion, you're saying God took out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. God took out my old desires and put new desires, and he gave me a new nature. Well, what greater confirmation is there of that claim than seeing that new nature growing and developing in you? It's not a bar you meet. It's a direction you're moving. It's evidences of grace in your life. This is a biblical basis. We are told periodically to examine ourselves. We, we are told to, to, to size ourselves up and, and it is a good thing to do this. And, and if you're struggling with this, talk to me, talk to someone else. But this is why we also need each other. Because others can see evidences of grace in your life, or others can see evidences of thorns in your life. Say, hey man, what's going on here? And in this way, we, we assure our hearts. Now, 
we are not going to sing the final song. <laughs> but I will close with a doxology from Jude. Again, if, if my perseverance depended on me, I'd lose my salvation tomorrow, probably later this afternoon. Thankfully, it doesn't. My faith is that the shepherd who sought me will hold me fast. My, my, my faith is that he will not let me slip through his hands, that he, through his word, through his people, through his promises, through his discipline at times, will maintain me. Now, Jude closes his epistle with this doxology, and I'll, I'll end our time with this as well. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you.